this point, we have the privilege of uh, actually installing some officers and new leaders of our church. If you remember, a few, a few weeks ago, we had a congregational meeting outside where we had a vote on uh, seven or eight different uh, individuals that we're bringing forth as elders and deacons and elder advisors and deacon assistants. And so we're going to uh, ordain and install them today. And I'm going to ask them to come up and kind of stand over in this area. And then all of the other current elders and deacons and advisors and assistants come up as well. And you'll stand over here. Maybe there'll be some people left in the chairs. I'm not, I'm not sure. But if you'd, if you'd all come up, that'd be great. <clears throat> If you all, if you all could move this way, there's this piece of tape here that you're supposed to be on this side of it, according to AJ. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so we uh, we have uh, Kurt Claussen and Carlos Gomez who are uh, coming as elder uh, elected elders, and AJ Durr and Dan Hendrickson as deacons will be ordaining and installing them. We also have Laura Cresswell as an elder advisor, and we have uh, Bobby and Connie Guerra and Jan Hughes-Austin as deacon assistants. And they've all gone through the same uh, training together, and they've come to the point where uh, they were ready to step forward and take on upon themselves the responsibilities of, of these offices and leadership roles. and. And so it's great joy that we're able this morning to ask them these questions and, and for them to answer them before you. And then we're going to have a question for you at the end as well as the congregation of the church. So let me ask them these questions first. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as originally given to be the inerrant word of God and only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms of the church, believing that they contain the system of doctrine taught in the Bible? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with the fundamentals of this system, that you will on your own initiative make known to the session your changes that have taken place since you've taken these vows? These, the rest are shorter questions. Okay. Do you believe that the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America is in conformity with the general principles of biblical teaching? And do you accept the offices of ruling elder or deacon or the positions of elder advisor and deacon assistants promising to faithfully perform all the duties of these leadership roles to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you officers and leaders? Do you promise subjection in the Lord to your fellow elders, deacons, and leaders? And then finally, do you promise to strive for the peace, purity, unity, and edification of the church? You guys are a real gift to Harbor City. Thank you already for your service and for what the Lord will use you for in, in the future. Uh, Church, Harbor City, there's one question uh, to ask of you. Do you, the members of Harbor City Church, acknowledge and receive 
these brothers and sisters as your elders, deacons, elder advisor, and deacon assistants? And do you promise to yield to them all the honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their offices and leadership entitles them? If so, say, I do. Let me pray. And I'll ask the others if you would come over and uh, and pray with me over these brothers and sisters. I'll lead us here. Father, we thank you for the gift that each one of these leaders are and these new leaders as they take these positions. We pray your blessing upon their lives as they step into these roles, knowing that uh, they need not only to have wisdom from you, but encouragement uh, from others as well. We pray that as a church, we would uh, be good followers as well as good leaders, that, Lord, you would give to us the wisdom to make great choices and to lead your church well and give eyes and ears to our congregation to see that and to follow willingly and and, uh, joyfully as we serve this city, as we serve you, as we serve one another. And we pray that you would bless each one of them as we set them apart for serving you and, and caring for your congregation here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a declaration to make, official declaration. I declare that you've been elected, that the elders and deacons ordained, and all of you installed as officers and leaders of Harbor City Church in accordance with God's word and our form of government. And as such, you are entitled to all honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a privilege of mine. Uh, if you don't have, haven't met me before, I'm Doug Swaggerty, and I'm, I'm just kind of the, the guy who's keeping the plate spinning here for a while. We call it interim, and that's how I feel. Uh, and, but it's a, it's a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Last week, we started a series. I told you it was going to be three sermons on the same parable. Parables are the stories that Jesus told that emphasize uh, certain truths that he wanted to get across to people. And this parable that we're looking at is usually called the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, we looked last week and saw that really the main point of the parable wasn't uh, the younger brother, it was really the older brother was the main point of the parable. Um, That the original audience, when they heard this story, they weren't Uh, dissolving into tears because they were so moved by the the prodigal son coming back. They were livid because Jesus was challenging them over the fact that they judged the sinners that that came to Jesus, and they judged Jesus for receiving those sinners. But in the context of looking at the older brother, and we saw his heart was hard. We said there's also two other characters in this story, and their hearts are different than the older brother. His heart is hard. We're going to look at the younger brother this morning, and the word that I use for the younger brother is the astonished heart. He has an astonished heart at the end of this story. Then next week, we'll look at the father's heart. Usually, the question that we ask when we go through this story is, which character are you? Are you the older brother? Are you the younger brother in the, in the story? And one of the things we underscored last week that the answer to that either-or question is yes. <laughs> it's not either-or, it's yes. That sometimes in our lives we are the older brother. Sometimes in our lives we're the younger brother. Sometimes we stand 
with our arms crossed in, in anger. Other times we need God's mercy and we, we find it as we come back to him. And so we're going to look at that part of the story this morning. I was uh, watching a, a show this week where, on TV where um, one of the characters was trying to explain to the other people in his office what uh, some stuff about day trading and short selling stocks and all those sorts of things. And he went on like about a two or three minute explanation of it. And then they panned to his uh, audience, the other people in the office, and they were all looking at him like, I don't understand a word of what you just said. And I think that there's something similar to that that happens sometimes when we are confronted with stories in the Old Testament or as Jesus told stories in the New Testament. Uh, they're talking about stories in a way and they raise issues that at first we may not understand the significance of the particular thing that Jesus is saying or that something that, that happened in the Old Testament. We don't understand it because we don't live in that context. We don't live in that culture. Our times are different. And so part of understanding the depth of what's going on, especially in this parable, is understanding some of those contextual pieces. And that's what I hope to pass along uh, to you this morning. So there's, there's five things about the uh, younger brother's heart that I want to share this morning. If you were here last week, you saw the, the graphic. Uh, we're doing really well in terms of turning this thing from outside to inside, but we haven't yet wired the whole TV thing. Uh, and so you that are here live don't get that. Those of you who are online, you'll get my fancy uh, PowerPoint presentation that the others aren't, aren't going to see. So I'll try to make it real clear for those of you who are here. There's five characteristics of the younger brother's heart that I want you to see uh, in this story. And the first is that it's an ambitious heart. Let me read to you um, the story up until the point where the older brother comes into play and then we'll, because we looked, really looked at that last part of the story last week. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
The first thing that we see about this younger brother is that he had this ambitious heart. What I mean by that is it seems as if he had a desire to prove himself, to prove his worth apart from his family. You know how, you maybe you don't know personally how it is, uh, but we've all seen stories, read stories about people who grow up in wealthy families, how sometimes the children just inherit what their fathers and mothers and grandparents and ancestors have, have built up. Sometimes, though, they want nothing to do with it because they want to make the mark on, on their own without the benefit of everything that they've been given in their family. I think this is what's going on in some ways with, with the younger brother. Um, he's not willing to just receive what he's been given, but he wants to prove his own worth, even as, as sort of Adam and Eve felt that same way in the garden, that they, they wanted to be able to understand things apart from God. Well, the younger brother wanted to live life and have meaning apart uh, from his, his family. In Jeremiah 2.13, uh, the prophet there is representing God. He's speaking for God. And God says, my people have committed two sins, he says. My people have committed two sins. And, and I think this is a great statement for any of the thousands of possible sins we could commit. They all boil down to two sins. That's what the prophet is saying here. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And then secondly, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see, what God is saying through the prophet here is that our, our tendency in all sin is, first of all, to ignore God, to forsake God. But then secondly, we try to come up with things that can take the place of God. And God says, I'm the spring of living water, and you're over there building cisterns or those weren't wells. Those were actually holding tanks for water. But they're cracked, and they can't hold the water is what Jeremiah, the Lord says through Jeremiah. And so there's two sins. It's the sin of ignoring God and then trying to replace God. And the younger brother falls into this kind of trap when he says, I'm, I'm not only going to ignore my family, ignore my father, but I'm going to replace him because I have this ambitious heart. You know, the pull of ambition is really incredible. I read a a story or a survey that was taken years ago, right after one of the Olympics, um, there was, and, and when there were scandals about performance-enhancing drugs, uh, there was someone who went to 198, actually, athletes who had performed at that kind of level, and he gave them a scenario, and he said, he said, number one, um, you can take these drugs, and you won't get caught. And then secondly, if you take these drugs, you'll win your event. Would you take the drugs? You won't get caught, and you'll win your event. Would you take illegal drugs to enhance your performance? 195 out of 198 said, yes, I would. That's the pull of ambition. He followed up with a second question. He said, here's another scenario. You won't get caught for the next five years you'll win every event you enter in, but that at the end of those five years, the drugs are going to kill you. Would you take the drugs? And amazingly, almost half of the 198 said, I'll take that deal. I'll take that deal. That drive to make a mark was so strong that they would trade it uh, for just five more years of life. You know, the ultimate issue is that we want to make that mark sometimes. We refuse to be defined by God, and that's where the, 
younger brother made his first mistake. But secondly, he had what I call the self-centered heart, a self-centered heart. Uh, what he was doing here with his father was an incredible insult, and especially so in that particular culture. In that culture, if a son before his father would die would ask for his inheritance, inevitably, in most cases, he would be beaten. It was such an insult for uh, someone to make that request because they're basically saying this. They're basically saying, I can't wait. I can't wait. I want, I want the deal. I want, I want you to be dead, and I want your stuff, but I want it without you. Um, and that was just an extremely offensive thing for someone to say to uh, his or her father. Give me my inheritance while you're still alive. I can't wait for it. I read a while back that Prince Charles was being asked once by the British press a while back uh, certain questions relating to when he thought he might ascend to the throne. As you know, He's the next one in, air, uh, in line after Queen Elizabeth. And they were questioning about when he might get there and what would have to happen and all these different uh, you know, potentialities that would have to take place. And, and finally, he just stopped them cold. He stopped the questions cold. And he said, do you realize that you're talking about the death of my mother? And they all felt about that tall because they weren't thinking that. And the questions stopped. It was an incredible insult for this younger brother uh, to do this. But neither son, we've seen, really loved the father. He was merely a means to their ends. And we fall into that same trap, friends, when we seek the blessings of God without seeking God. A self-centered heart. The third thing is that it was a lonely heart. Uh, there was, there's kind of this descent into despair that the younger brother goes through. It, it says in the text, that the father divided up the inheritance. We saw last week that typically the older brother would get twice as much as the younger brother. So for the sake of just uh, illustration, let's say that in this particular context, which was an agrarian culture, there's, there's livestock and, and, and uh, stuff that they're growing on the farm. Say that he had 30 acres. Well, the father would give 10 of those acres to this younger brother when the younger brother said, give me my inheritance. The other 20 would be set aside for the older brother. And there was a law that was written that said, you can pass on your inheritance, but the heir cannot cash in land and sell it off before the father dies. But in this story, Jesus says, that not only did the father divide up the inheritance, but it said that the younger son got together all he had and set off for a foreign land. And so what it's saying that the younger son did was he took his 10 acres and he sold it. So can you imagine what that meant for the father and the older brother and everyone else surrounding the family, the workers, that every day they'd get up and they would look at their 30 acres and a third of it, 10 acres of it, would be someone else's property now, being worked by someone else. It was a daily reminder that the younger brother had cashed in in that way that was offensive, against the rules, and he had run off with that money. 
and, and there was a descent into despair that happens with his younger brother because as long as uh, he went to the other country and, and uh, in, enjoyed life, and as long as he had money, he had friends, but as soon as he had no money, there were no friends. In his culture and in our culture as well, uh, there's too many ifs, aren't there? I'll love you if. And the younger brother eventually experienced that, that conditional kind of love, and he realized it wasn't there anymore. And he found himself in need, and he, and he went to the point where he actually hired himself out to a farmer who had pigs, and he's, he's in the pig pen feeding the pigs. And again, culturally, remember here, this is a young Jewish man who's in the pig pen with unclean animals. It's not just any animal, it's pigs that he's in. And I'm not talking about the fact that pigs are dirty and they roll around in mud. That's not what I'm talking about when I say unclean. What I mean is that there were clean animals and unclean animals in the Old Testament. And the Jews, Jewish people were told not to affiliate, not to touch, not to handle unclean animals. Pigs were in that unclean category. And here was the younger brother serving the pigs. And you think, where do you go when you hit rock bottom? He was searching for something unconditional, uh, but he didn't find it with all these new friends that he had. But he had left home, and now he's just wondering, who can I trust in this particular situation? Because it seems to be too late. It, it, his heart became lonely. Uh, so we've had an ambitious heart, a self-centered heart, a lonely heart. The fourth heart that I see here is, is what is the beginning of a broken heart. For this young man. Finally, the lights came on, and we're not quite sure if uh, the, the level of what we would call repentance that's obvious in, in the sun at this point. Let me explain that in just a minute. But he comes to his senses in, in this sense, that he sees himself serving pigs and being without himself, and he's thinking, my father's servants have it better off than I do. And so I forfeited my right to be a child, but I'll go back and I'll tell my father, I'll just be one of your servants and I'll pay off the debt. And we think, well, isn't that, when he says, Father, he's going to say, he rehearses this speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. We think that sounds pretty deep, don't we? But there's another place in the Bible where someone said those very same words, and they would have resonated with his Jewish audience. The words that came out of the son's mouth were, I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know who said those words in the Old Testament? Pharaoh said those words after the eighth plague to Moses. He says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. What was Pharaoh trying to do? After the eighth plague, he was trying to get Moses out of there. He was trying to rid himself of, of all the pestilence and plagues that, that he felt Moses had brought upon his people. And so he says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Um, but was that a deep repentance on his part? No. He was trying to bargain his way out of a bad situation. And that may be part of what the son is doing here as he thinks through these words. I think those words would have, they would have... Uh, pricked the ears of his listeners 
They would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds like what Pharaoh said uh, back in, in the Old Testament. And they, and they would have wondered, well, is this guy like Pharaoh or is he really sorry uh, for, what, for what he's done? Uh, there's an incredible irony here that sometimes we think as we deal with God that we have something to bargain with, you know, that we have something to offer him of value. And so we, we, try to, we try to reason with him in that way. And is that what the younger brother's doing here? Is he just trying to get into a better situation than where he is right now? I'll, I'll live out in the, out in the you know, bunk yard with the, with the hired hands, Dad. And don't, I won't even call you Dad anymore. You don't even have to treat me like a son. But when we do that, friends, when we do that, God remains just as distant from us as he was from Pharaoh. God doesn't want our bargaining. God doesn't want our deals. God doesn't want what we have to offer. God wants our hearts. I think the younger brother's heart eventually was broken, but it was only after he went back to the father that we know for sure that that happened because that leads us to the fifth thing this morning, and that's that his heart was an astonished heart. There's this incredible welcome that the father gives to the son. I got an email this week from one of you who was thanking me for the sermon last week and just said, there were some things you mentioned in that sermon that I'd never realized or, or thought of. And I, I kind of answered back by saying, yeah, you know, this is one of those texts that every time I look at it, I learn something different. And I didn't really think I was going to learn anything different this week. I didn't think that anything new was going to uh, impress itself on my mind as I read this. I wasn't really thinking about that. It just sounded like a humble and good thing to say, actually. Um, but here's, here's what struck me, and it struck me this morning. It's one word in the, in the passage here that struck me. And it's in verse 22. And the word is quick. The word is quick. The father turns to his servants and says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Bring the ring, the sandals, kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast. But he says, quick, do this quick. Why is why is that such a significant thing that the father would say, quick, do this? Well, again, it goes back to that culture and, and what really would have been going on with the younger brother returning. There's a, there's a, a book that um, the people of Israel had at that point. They had the, the, the law. They had Genesis through Deuteronomy uh, in, in those days. They had the words of the prophets. They had the Psalms. Um, but they also had this thing called the Talmud. And the Talmud was kind of like a commentary on all the Bible. And, and it also would uh, add certain things to what the Scripture said, to kind of enhance it. It was their attempt, uh, an honest attempt, I think, to, uh, to explain what the Bible was getting at and, and maybe put pieces into place, put laws into place that would help people obey the Bible and what the Old Testament was having to say. And in the Talmud, there was a particular ceremony that was outlined, and it was called a Ketsasis ceremony. Ketsasa ceremony. I can't get that out. Don't ask me to say it five times quickly like, like I can do Mephibosheth, but um, it's called a Ketsasa ceremony. Here it is. Here's what it is. It referred to situations where a Jewish individual would lose his inheritance to Gentiles. 
And when that person would come back after losing his inheritance to Gentiles, there was a ceremony that would take place where the people of the village of the community that he was a part of would, would get an earthen jar and they would fill it full of burnt corn and burnt nuts. And after it was all full, they would break the jar and everything would spill out. And as it was spilling out, um, they, would, they would say the name of this person and they would say, may he be cut off from his people. May he be cut off from his people. And what that meant, you, you might want to think of that maybe in terms of like we, we read about how the Amish shun people that turn their backs on their community and they, uh, they, they shun them. But it's even more serious than that because when the Amish shun a person, they're still able to eat with them at a different table. What In this particular ceremony, what happens is they have nothing at all to do with the community at that point. They're told to just stay away. You are dead to us. You cannot have any, you can't even eat at the kids' table. You can't eat at the servants' table. You're dead to us. Be gone. That was what would normally happen. And, and when you think about that, it makes sense now what Jesus is saying when he talks about how the father was looking for the son from afar off. Okay? And the father is looking for any signs that the son might be coming. And as soon as he sees the son in the distance, he runs out to the son. And the son is probably thinking, okay, here comes the kitsatsa ceremony. I'm going to get the earthenware jar. I'm going to get it filled with nuts. They're going to break it. I'm just going to beg to be one of my father's servants. and Maybe he'll relent. But the father runs out. And he meets his son. <clears throat> he kisses him. And he embraces him. The son begins to rehearse his narrative. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off before he can say any more. And he says, quick, to his servants, quick. Get the robe. Get the ring. Get the sandals. Kill the fattened calf. We've got to start this celebration. Because the father knows that as soon as everyone else in the village sees his son coming back, they're going to start burning the nuts and corn. And if they don't do it quick, if he doesn't start the party quick and let all these people know that he's forgiving his son, then his son will be cast out. Quick. Quick. Start doing these things. And so they kill the fattened calf. They bring the ring out. And the son is just astonished at what he sees before him. Expecting the worst, he receives something that is greater than anything he could ever imagine. And all of a sudden now, the father's welcome is what redefines this son. You see, what the father did was a preemptive strike. It was a preemptive strike. Not just preempting the son's speech, but preempting what the villagers would have done if he'd awaited. Robert Capone, in this book that's entitled The Astonished Heart, he says this, that God comes to us in the brokenness of our heart, in the shipwreck of our family lives, 
in the loss of all possible peace of mind, even in the very thick of our sins. He saves us in the disasters, not from them. He emphatically does not promise to meet only the odd winner of the self-improvement lottery. He meets all of us in our endless and inescapable losing. That's where he meets us. And he says, quick. The Kasasa ceremony was intended to bring shame upon the individual who had squandered the inheritance. And what the father did, he didn't remove the shame of what the son had done. He took it on himself. Because what would everyone else have thought? They would have thought, what a fool. What a fool this father is. For giving his son his embrace and another chance. But the father welcomed him home and pursued his grace. You see, friends, the gospel really shows us a, a third way. There's uh, to, to receive God's love. There's the cold conformity of the older brother, which leads to hardness. There's, there's kind of that route of self-discovery the younger brother went out to try to accomplish, which led him into despair and hopelessness. But then there's grace, which is God pursuing us and saying, quick, I'll take the shame. Jesus, last week we saw that he was really the true older brother. This week, uh, what we see is that Jesus is really the true prodigal, isn't he? Because there was a time when he left his father. And he left his father to go to a distant country where he ended up lonely and despised. The difference was that Jesus, when he was lonely and despised, he was doing it for you and for me. He lost his father so that we could have him. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And in Hebrews, there's two mentions in the book of Hebrews about shame that are connected to Jesus. One is in Hebrews 12, the beginning of Hebrews 12, when it's talking about Jesus going to the cross. It says that he despised the shame. You think about that? So he's in the role of the father here. The son has come back. Someone's got to take the shame. Jesus took the shame that belonged to us. It should have been ours. He said he despised it. It's as if Jesus were saying, I could not care less about the shame. I could not care less. I'll spit on that shame. And the other thing Hebrews tells us about shame is that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. That's grace, friends. May you experience that. May you experience it quickly because that's how God wants to give it to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no matter how long it takes us to get away from you, no matter how far we have to go, that when we come to our senses, your, your word is quick. Quick, let's move. 
toward forgiveness and towards grace. And Father, we, we are amazed at that. We can't comprehend it. We're astonished that you would love us to that extent. And Jesus, we thank you that you're not ashamed to call us your brothers and your sisters in the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.